Hello and welcome back to Wisconsin Law in Action, a podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship with the University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is the Center for Patient Partnerships Director and Distinguished Clinical Professor of Law, Meg Gaines. Thank you for joining me, Professor Gaines. Delighted. Professor Gaines will be discussing her recent article, How HIPAA Harms Care and How to Stop It, along with a future forthcoming article that we're just going to discuss a little bit about as well. She co-authored both the current article and the forthcoming article with Dr. Donald M. Berwick from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So before we get into these articles, let's talk about you a little bit. That's one of my favorite subjects, is to talk with you about what you're doing these days. Um, Can you give us your background, what your interests are in scholarly work, and what you do here at the law school? Yes, uh, I'm a sort of criminal defense lawyer turned uh, healthcare advocate by virtue of personal experience and went from being uh, on the faculty at the Remington Center to starting the Center for Patient Partnerships uh, almost 20 years ago. And uh, my interest is in raising patients' voices into um, the healthcare equation, whether it's at the micro level, their own care, the meso level, the sort of the institution or the provider uh, organizations, or the macro level in the halls of Congress and and um, in the CMS, so Centers for Medicare Medicaid Services. Actually, Don Berwick was um, the acting director of CMS under President Obama for a long time. Uh, I say acting director because he's um, in favor of single payer and a whole bunch of other things that would have made it impossible for him to get confirmation in the Senate when the time was there. But um, right. Right, he was probably facing maybe a relatively hostile Congress. He was, but he was acting for a long time. Oh, <laughs> that's good. He was acting yeah. for. And a... during the passage of the Affordable Care Act, and was one of the co-authors of the passage of the uh, of the Affordable Care Act. Oh, great, great. Yeah. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that background. Thanks yeah. for providing that. Sure. Um, Center for Patient Partnerships. That's one of the clinics here in the law school. Can right. you go into a little bit more detail about what kind of work you do down there? Yeah, we do um, advocacy for people with life-threatening and serious chronic illness from illnesses from across the globe, really, I like to say from Texas to Thailand and Portage to Portugal, Mm. Um, and we've helped people in all those places. And people call us or find us on the internet and say, help, I've been diagnosed with this gnarly thing, and I'd like help figuring out who's, you know, the person I should see or the people I should see and where's the place and how do I get my insurance to pay for it and um, what do I do if I get fired in the interim because that's where my insurance comes from. So um, a diagnosis of a life-threatening or serious chronic illness is a um, is a potentially life-altering event, mm. and um, we try to help people uh, have a softer landing. That's at the sort of clinic core level. Then we work with um, undergrad and law students um, in uh, three clinics throughout the city, um, including a collaborative clinic, the Medic Clinic, with the medical students, and we uh, work with folks in those areas to address what's now called social determinants of health. So um, food access, transportation access, housing, um, employment, those kinds of things. So the students interview all the patients who come into those clinics and identify needs and try to help connect them with resources, which is an extraordinary, as you might imagine, pipeline into law school, medical school, nursing school, social work, pharmacy, counseling, psych, industrial engineering, genetic counseling. Um, we have students from all those um, from all those departments uh, in our in our program. So that's kind of a second major area, and then the third major area is we have a research component. Um, called, which we refer to as national initiatives, where we do 
we are leading in the country in developing um, the science, what we call the science of elicitation, which is how do you get, instead of just a survey that says on a scale of one to seven, my doctor did or didn't tell me everything I needed to know, right? We can ask you a question like, what were the three best things and the three things you think have most room for improvement that happened in your doctor's appointment and, and you know, tell us in your own words. And then in collaboration with the RAND Corporation, some folks from Yale and a couple of others, we've, we're developing a natural language interpreter that can report these as big data. Mm -hmm. um, so that if you're a clinician, you don't just get a form that says you're a 7.2, good luck figuring out why. Right? You get something that says you're a 7.2 and 40% of the people talked about how your hand was on the doorknob or you spent all your time on the screen or you seemed in a hurry to go or whatever the issue is. It seems like a practical way for, for physicians to understand how to improve themselves and to help people more easily. It is, and it's getting patients' voices up and out in a... Uh, in a scientifically sound way mm -hmm. instead of only relying on um, anecdotes. Yeah, because right? an anecdote, well, it can be helpful to an extent, but right. this is taking it to the next level, it sounds mm -hmm. like, to kind of give you a big, to kind of give the doctors a bigger picture of what these right. anecdotes add and up to. most of these physician review sites will have 10 or 12 reviews on them, and almost all of them are people who are unhappy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you hear the unhappiness that those right. the squeaky wheels getting the grease all right. the time. Right, this, and this right. kind of provides some more balance to um, the feedback. That's not a good way to 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 help professionals learn um, who they are and see and sort of get self reflection. Right, be mm -hmm. able to sort of self reflect mm -hmm. um, and have a mirror held up to them by people who. So yeah. that's that's called the science of elicitation, and that's taking patients' voices up to the macro level and trying to be sure that, that patients are heard in their own voices. That's great. I, this is, I, I am lucky enough to be the liaison to Center for Patient Partnerships, and yeah. I love hearing about this stuff. It's so fascinating to me because, it, as you mentioned, it straddles all these different worlds where I get yeah. to step out of the legal realm just for a tiny little bit and hear about some stuff that's happening elsewhere, especially in the medical world, which is yeah. wonderful. right, right. Uh, along those lines, let's start digging into this most recently published article. It was published in JAMA in 2018, mm -hmm. uh, How HIPAA Harms Care and How to Stop It. Mm -hmm. So when you were publishing this article, um, what made you want to get this out there? What did you and Dr. Berwick uh, want to have people take away from this article? Well, in this case, um, Dr. Berwick contacted me and said, that, and w with a friend of his who had just lost his wife in, a, in, a, in an accident, and was in, she was in the hospital for a long time, and he was frustrated because he couldn't get access to her records. And Don was, uh, both wanted me to kind of help that person, but then also went into, um, uh, you know, was sort of triggered, let's say. Yeah. I think he'd think that was fair. Mm -hmm. Triggered by his frustration and by the general kind of frustration of clinicians about how um, quirky the enforcement of HIPAA is and the the regulations, or not even the regulations, is sort of the um, training that, that people get who work in healthcare institutions about what HIPAA says and what they can and can't do, which often bears very little relationship to what the law says. Mm -hmm. um, so there's become this kind of um, HIPAA, HIPAA kind of training and HIPAA interpretation has sort of taken on a life of its own. Um, and I lay some of that blame on lawyers who just kind of get in there and um, decide they want to sell trainings and, and want to consult with healthcare organizations and tell them what they can and can't do. And I lay some of the blame, or we do, on the federal government because I think it would be easy for the federal government to say, here's the standard HIPAA form, 
here's the standard HIPAA training. Like, just do this and you will comply with the law. But instead, they kind of leave it to the private market. And that um, isn't always, it's not always good to have, you know, many colors of the rainbow. Right. So sometimes you just want the light shining. Right. Yeah. It's, in this case, especially, the light should be very specific because yeah. this is an important area of law, obviously, that affects right. people on a very practical level. Right. You use the word myth a lot in this uh, article. Right. Um, there's a lot of myths out there, I think, that's make people tend to go on the conservative side and say, you know, we're going to play it safe and not give this information out. Uh, what kind of ways should, can they get around these myths? What can you get out there to uh, explain why these are myths and why it doesn't really affect HIPAA? Well, I think um, instead of, I think the main thing is if you're a leader in a healthcare institution, instead of saying, you know, what does HIPAA require and how do I need to conform to it? I think the question is, how do we want to take care of patients and their families in our community and what's going to get in our way? Mm -hmm. And if HIP is in our way, then we got to figure out how to get around that. Mm -hmm. But we got to, you know, so it's the wrong question to ask, what are all these laws and how can I make sure I comply with them? I think what you want to ask is what kind of, what kind of care, what kind of uh, operation do we want to have here? Mm -hmm. You know, what kind of business do we want to have here um, or organization or entity or whatever? And uh, how can we uh, make that happen and clear the obstacles? So that's the first thing is sort of if the people in your shop understand that the goal is to um, is to really pay attention to the needs of your um, your your customers, your clientele, your patients, your whatever you want to call them, mm -hmm. um, and their families, then that's a very different organization. I mean, you don't find these HIPAA myths nearly as prevalent in places where they make things possible that aren't prohibited. Right. That's, I think I like the way you put that. It's not as prevalent where they're making things possible. That's, right. I think they, that's very nice. Where they're not prohibited. And if they're not prohibited, then they're not prohibited. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, um, it's just about sort of what you're trying to do and whether you have your eyes on the prize. Mm-hmm. And then at, towards the end of the article, you, rec you have some recommendations about how to maybe balance this out a little bit more, where right now there's a lot of fines and penalties that can be levied for violating HIPAA, but there's also some recommendations to help balance this out where you're still helping out the patients that may need, or the other visiting clinicians, or if you transfer doctors to get that. Um, there's some of these that are kind of at the macro level, and some of them are at the more maybe micro or level. Uh, mm -hmm. Would you mind going through those a little bit and discussing them and seeing what you, explain what you think of these? Um, no, I do think there, that there needs to be some research done about the the importance of this problem and the prevalence of the problem and what and to describe the problem so we can really address them. Whether they're myths or real problems with the law, uh, we need to know kind of first of all what they are. Um, and then, uh, as I mentioned before, I think that um, there should be, the federal government should promulgate model policies and procedures that, that take the, the, you know, mystery out of HIPAA. I mean, there doesn't have to be a, a mystery about it. Um, and then uh, it is interesting what you say. I think we suggest that HHS, uh, the, the Health and Human Services Department, should consider enforcing penalties for the failure to release information, not just for releasing information's wrong, information wrongfully, because that will shift the, <clears throat> I think, the conversation and the kind of mental awareness towards how do we facilitate good care, not how do we follow the, you know, what we perceive to be uh, the regulations, right? Um, and finally, I think uh, there always needs to be um, 
collaboration between patient advocacy organizations and the uh, professional society, so ultimately real reform in healthcare across the board, not just in HIPAA, will happen when clinicians and patients uh, join together mm -hmm. because uh, healthcare is a business in this country and it's largely driven by business interests. And so uh, in order to sort of go up against uh, big money, and it is big money, it's the biggest money industry in the United States, um, you really do have to have the people who are affected by that and who have power within it potentially uh, to come together to craft uh, resistance. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. So before we jump into the forthcoming stuff that you're mm -hmm. going to be working on, uh, this was published last year, as we mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of reactions have you seen to the article, or what reactions do you hope to see from the article going forward? We got a lot of um, uh, comments on the article and uh, a lot of emails from the uh, after the article. Most of them were uh, clinicians telling us how um, burdensome HIPAA was for them. We got no pushback, is what I would say. There was nobody who disagreed with us. <laughs> It's always a nice feeling. You say, "Oh, I feel like we're probably in the right here." <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, I, I'm not sure we. I'm not sure that um, we necessarily got representation from, say, high, a high-level organizational folks who wanted to say, uh, "You know, it's easy for you to say, but I got these lawyers breathing down my neck telling me, you sure. know." I always say, lawyer, "Lawyers in these kinds of situations are sort of." You know, I, I, I wonder why, why people hire them. Like, why do you pay three hundred and fifty to five hundred dollars an hour? to someone to give you advice that your grandmother used to give you for free, you know, which is don't take any risk under any circumstances for any reason whatsoever, you know? And it's not really helpful to have a lawyer who says that. Um, but that's, you know, that's the safe thing for a lawyer to say. And I think one of the things we try to do at this law school is to teach uh, students to get interested in how to solve the problem, not just um, you know, how to stay out of trouble giving people advice. Right, more the law in action. Yeah. Why the name of our podcast, yes, Wisconsin Law in exactly. Action. That's kind of the, the thesis of this whole law school, what right. the driving force is to say, go in there and figure out what the problem is, not just to stay away from the problem. And how can the law serve the people instead of the people serve the law? Mm -hmm. Like that's, um, you know, mm -hmm. the difference between certain kinds of societies and other kinds of societies. Right, one we want to be in, one we do not want to be in. Right, in ways. right. Yeah. So uh, now we'll start shifting onto the, your forthcoming article. Okay. Um, so this is kind of a, this is probably not the right way to put it, but I'm going to say it anyway, a sequel to this article. A well, bit. it's a sequel <laughs> in terms of the two of us writing together. This yeah. one was my idea and, and Don got interested in it because I think it, it, it was surprising to him as it has been to a number of clinicians, which kind of leads to the, you know, what's, what's the challenge of writing this article. So this is an article about um, prior, what we call prior auth reversals. So everyone, all your listeners are familiar with the process of going in for care. And if it's particularly if it's something significant, you know, the, the hospital, sometimes the patient too, will call the insurance company and say, is this covered? And they get an answer, right? Yes or no or whatever. And, and the hospital calls in, before the care is initiated and gets clearance, um, prior, what's called prior authorization to do the care. Um, the insurance companies always, um, there's, and there's a legal reason for this, but they always say at the end of those calls, um, by the way, this is not a guarantee of payment. And the hospital call, you know, people on the phone at the hospital are used to saying, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm, okay, see you, bye. And that's that. Mm -hmm. But it has, that little phrase has really operated as kind of a, a getaway car for, for uh, a lot of insurance companies because um, they will then, um, people will then have the care, 
the insurer will then decide it wasn't appropriate care, it's not medically necessary, it's experimental or something else, and then they'll deny the care. So we had recently a case at the Center for Patient Partnerships where a 62-year-old woman who had had a history of ovarian cancer, who had her genetic testing come back to find that she was BRCA1 positive, so that's the breast and ovarian cancer gene. She was recommended by her doctor to have a double mastectomy. Her husband called his, the insurance carrier to make sure that it was covered. The hospital called to make sure that it was covered. They had the surge, she had the surgery and two weeks later got a bill for $65,000. Because now they're saying it was, it's experimental and therefore not medically necessary as it relates to BRCA1, this double mastectomy, sort of preventive care. So we appealed it and they denied it saying that they had a quote-unquote medical expert saying that, agreeing with them that it wasn't standard of care. Well, we know it's standard of care. We just know that. So we then, I then did a, we, my students and I, did a big whopping sort of letter brief to them, which included the guidelines of, you know, the national guidelines for treatment and all kinds of other things in it, and actually included these little legal arguments about um, breach of contract in the sense that you create an expectation, you you create a reliance in this person by telling them it's uh, covered and then telling them that it, in hindsight something you could have known at the time, right, which is that you think it's experimental. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, contract arguments are irrelevant at this juncture. It's an internal appeal. Mm. Um, but we did it anyway, and they ended up reversing and agreeing to pay for it, having consulted, according to their letter, six additional experts to determine that, you know, it was indeed not experimental and it was indeed standard of care. So this case got me really, really sort of got up in my craw, stuck in my craw. Mm -hmm. And we, I began to sort of look through our data and realize that we had a number of cases for different reasons. Um, I had another one at the time that was for a different reason. It was a coding issue, a billing coding issue. Uh, one of my favorites, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, but in any event, the, the the result is the same, which is the patient is left with this gigantic bill. And the provider for a while is very friendly with the patient and says, yes, let's get them, let's get it from the insurance policy. But once the provider begins to sense the insurer is not going to pay, they sort of slide around the other side of the table, become adversary, but, but really nice. And they say, well, you did sign this thing that said you'd pay if the insurance doesn't. And we can put you on a payment plan and we can knock off 20% or 30%. So now they've, they're persuading a patient, and in the Midwest this is really a problem because everybody here pays their bills. They're f obsessive about paying their bills. Mm -hmm. And so now you have somebody who shouldn't be paying anything, feeling like they got a break maybe, <laughs> because right. they're on a payment plan mm -hmm. with 20% off, mm -hmm. when they never should have owed this money. Mm -hmm. So you go back into the prior auth world and you realize that Right now, there's nothing legally barring them from doing this. And so this article is about um, the extent of the problem, which is what we're having an interesting challenge, kind of finding data, because insurers, private insurers, keep this data very tight. They're not required to report it. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of um, digging in national associations of commissioners of insurance and other areas like that, and also in contact with um, whistleblowers at... Um, formerly at insurance companies and other places who um, we're hoping can get us in touch, get us access to at least some data. But I'm not sure the actual collection of this data exists. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be interesting <clears throat> in response to the JAMA 
um, edits, you know, um, to figure out how to frame this that, <laughs> well, we don't really have data on the frequency. Right. We're collecting the frequency of the CPP data. So we're gone back two years in CPP and finding how many of these cases we've had. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, we're pretty small, so mm-hmm. it's what you wouldn't call it representative in any case. Mm-hmm. And since we do a fair number of Dane County cases, and Dane County's almost 85% HMOs, um, we also probably aren't representative on this. I mean, um, this is probably more indemnity insurance and um, what's called third-party administrators, so self-funded plans which have these hire these third-party administrators to you say yay and nay and. <laughs> Right, so obviously the challenge here is to find that data to help back up the, you, you see it in your numbers, but the numbers might not be out there in enough, in the not numbers themselves to actually provide the more representative samples. It's, it's protected data. Mm-hmm. I mean, they own the data. Mm-hmm. Right, and they're not going to say, yeah, here you go, use it against us in right. some ways. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. yes, we've given X many prior auths and reversed on Y many. They're not going to tell us that. No. no they don't want to tell us that. No. And also, I'm not even sure they collect it because I know they collect, I know they co- collect prior authorizations, and I know they collect denials, but I don't know that they collect reversals of prior authorization. Mm-hmm. Right, and they may not because that's not something that they want to have. That if right. someone were able to get access to it, it would not look good for for them. Or <laughs> right, <laughs> that's just an optics thing almost. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't I don't know. Um, it from, from the from the point of view of you know, you're writing about it. It's interesting to think about how you um, how you write about a problem and then really have to talk about how this evidence is not, the data is not forthcoming because the data is protected and, and is is owned and we don't have access to it. Right, and even that could play a part in the paper itself to say that this is indicative of something potentially or whatever. Right. Yeah, It's the problem with having a system, a healthcare system, quote-unquote, which isn't really a system. It's a collection of private businesses. But, you know, not until it sort of becomes a system proper will we have access to this kind of data. Otherwise, it's proprietary. Mm -hmm. And not until we own it, which, you know, we may or may not ever own it. And there will be a whole host of problems, you know, if we own it. But at least in my view, we'll be working on the right problems and not the wrong problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm still catching my breath after the $65,000 bill. I'm still, yeah. <laughs> whew, yeah. that's a lot of money yeah. know, for something that shouldn't yeah. have been owed, and they tried to mm-hmm. have, have her pay that. And, so. a, and a hairdresser gets a bill for, you know, goes in to have a procedure she's had done twice before. And this third time it gets denied because of a coding snafu between the doctor and the, and the provider organization that he worked for. And then they bill this a different code, and she gets a bill for $14,500. I mean, she's a she's a hairdresser. She doesn't have fourteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Um, Few people do, even right? Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And in 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 healthcare, you're talking big money very fast. I mean, as anybody knows who's been to the emergency room, mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking big money really fast. It mm-hmm. it doesn't. Nothing's cheap. Right. I, I used to work at a bankruptcy firm. I worked there from 2007 to 2008, so right at the height of all this going on, and mm-hmm. there was just so many people that I spoke with on the phone about it. It was just one medical bill, and that was all it took to push, oh, it yeah. all, push them over into the considering bankruptcy. It's in our article, it's in our article that still, at least by the latest uh, data we're looking at, still more than half of bankruptcies, are the principal bill is medical debt. Mm-hmm. It's just one accident is literally what it is, and that's all it takes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or just ordinary diagnosis. I mean, you know, diabetes. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. It's incredibly expensive with the way insulin is, you know, repatented and repatented and repatented in this country. It's 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 nuts. And then of course they stop making the 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 stuff that um, is cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you said you're in the editing process with JAMA here. When mm -hmm. do you expect that this paper might be out or with some of the ideas out there? You know, it's been a really, uh, it, it's almost been a more fun, um, it was fun writing it because it's it's always fun when you have a, you know, a bee in your bonnet to get it down on paper. Mm -hmm. um, but it's been almost more fun doing the, relating to the edits or responding to the edits because this data um dive has been super interesting like this whole world of who's who and who did what when and you know i'm reading these articles about these people who whistle blew at united healthcare and then came out and blue girls blue shield and then so it's just been a fascinating learning experience for me so you know uh, when do i think we'll get and don is super busy as well so mm -hmm. when do i think we'll get it back to jama i would guess probably by the end of next month, mm -hmm. you know, because we'll have a up or down about whether we get much data mm -hmm. by the end of next month. And then, you know, my guess is they'll publish it um, sometime in, you know, December, January, February, something like that. That's great. Well, I look forward to reading that one. Yeah. I, I enjoyed reading the HIPAA one. Now I look forward to reading the yeah. authorization reversal one. This is yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Um, so where can people find out more about your work? Uh, www.patientpartnerships.org. Mm -hmm. I right. mean, that's where we're... Uh, um, where we are. And then I did a TED Med talk. So if you go to TED Med and Google me, uh, you, or, you know, search me, don't Google and <laughs> Don't TED Google Med. within TED Med. Okay. <laughs> uh, search me. Uh, you can listen to the TED Med talk if that's of interest. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and we'll link to all this as well on our podcast page here to include the patient partnerships mm -hmm. page and the TED Med talk and all the other papers that you have out there as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks for joining us on Wisconsin Law in Action. We've been talking about HIPAA and how it harms healthcare, along with authorization reversals with Professor Meg Gaines. Professor Gaines's papers can be found on her SSRN page and in the University of Wisconsin Law School repository. Links to both, along with links to the Center for Patient Partnerships and to Professor Gaines's Med TED Talk, will be posted along with this podcast at wilawinaction.law.wic.edu. You can subscribe to the Wisconsin Law and Action podcast on the Apple iTunes Store, Stitcher, or Google Play, or find our full archive, this is our fourth one, at wilawinaction.law.wic.edu. Thank you again for listening, and please join us next time as Professor David Schwartz joins us to discuss his new book, The Spirit of the Constitution, John Marshall and the 200-Year Odyssey of McCullough v. Maryland. See you then, and happy researching.